Well, Adam White is part of the SEN cricket team, and this has been a very big talking point in Australian sport, not just cricket over the last few days. The elevation of Steve Smith to opener and the re-emergence of Cam Green in the Australian Test 11 at number four in the batting lineup. We, we spoke about, Adam, uh, hello to you, mate. Thanks for joining us first and foremost. No problems, Gabby. Great to have a chat to you. Great to have you on. We spoke about the actual selection a lot yesterday, which we will do with you in a moment. But I want to ask first about Cam Bancroft and, and Marcus Harris to a slightly lesser extent who miss out. They are terribly unlucky. I mean, they are just so incredibly unfortunate, aren't they? And I know you are a Victorian, so you might lean more towards Marcus Harris. But my goodness, you have to feel for Cam Bancroft as well in a situation like this. Well, in fact, they're both Western Australians. Well, Harris is, Martin yes. Harris plays. Yeah, he plays for Victoria, but he, but he's a, a WA boy. Um, look, I think they're both they're both really unlucky for different reasons. I think purely and simply on runs scored, um, Cameron Bancroft can be classed as very unlucky. Um, you know, we often hear, and it doesn't matter whether you're playing for Australia or whether you're playing for your local club. If you get dropped, it's okay, go back and get runs and you'll get rewarded. And that's what Cameron Bancroft has done now over a long period of time. He's been very consistent at Sheffield Shield level. And if you look at just the numbers for this year, so relevant and recent form, um, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. So there's no doubt that Bancroft is unlucky. Marcus Harris is a bit of a different one. He's unlucky because he has been the incumbent now for quite some time and he was kind of being groomed as the the man to replace David Warner. Um, He was the backup batsman through last summer. Um, Should it be that Warner lost his form and and lost his spot in the team? And then over in the Ashes, the same thing. And, you know, there was no guarantee that David Warner would, would play past the World Test Championship final. So that's how close Harris was to playing then. Mm. Has he done much wrong since that time? I don't think he has. He hasn't got compelling numbers, but he still scored um, a a shield 160 against Tasmania. Um, And he's been a victim of batting on some pretty dicey decks at the MCG and also in Adelaide in those bank of shield games to start the season. So, yeah, he's averaged about mid thirties, whereas Bancroft is at his average mid fifties. So, you know, for different reasons, I think both of them can count themselves as really unlucky because they are specialised openers, um, not just you know in the best six bats. They play a specific role in their team. We're taking texts and calls on the unluckiest cricketers in Australian history in wake of the Bancroft and Harris omissions. So we'll get your nominations at the end of this chat, Whitey. Before that, though, your thoughts on the selection, a day on, uh, the elevation of Steve Smith to opener, Cam Green's re-inclusion. Does it sit with you any differently 24 hours on from the announcement? I'm agonising over this one because okay. I can see it from both I can see it from both sides. Um I can understand that from the point of view of they really do want Cameron Green playing for Australia. They see him as a generational talent and they don't want him sitting on the sidelines where he can't develop further as an Australian player. Um, so I get that. And you're not going to drop Ma- uh, Mitch Marsh. And no one expected Mitch, Ma- Mitch Marsh to do as well as he did since mm. he got back into the team um, up at Headingley when Green was ironically um, left out because he was injured. So I can understand it. The Steve Smith one, where it's a positive is that Steve Smith, to my eye, is just battling a little bit. He's not playing terrible cricket, but it seems that he's lost his spark a little bit. He's lost his mojo. And I think it's almost him going to the selectors or going to the coaching group and saying, hey, I want to open the batting because I need a new challenge. And I need to find a way to get back to my best before India come next summer. 
and then obviously the ashes after that. That's what it looks like from the outside. So it, you can say that it's being unselfish because he's taking himself out of number four, out of his comfort zone to open the batting to let Cameron Green come in at number four. But then you can look at it the other way and it's like he's doing it for himself to try and recapture his best form. So that's why I'm sort of agonising it over a little bit. What I will say to Garby, though, is that I do understand what George Bailey said when he said, we want to pick our best six batsmen Mm. um, in the country. Now, I think they're picking their best five. I'm still not sure you'd say that Mitch Marsh is in the best six batsmen in the country. But as an overall package in that number six role, there is no more destructive player in uh, in Australian cricket at the moment, such as his confidence and his form. Cameron Green averages over 50 in Sheffield Shield cricket batting at number four. Yep. That is, I think, his best spot. I don't think the Australian cricket fans have seen the best of him at number six because he's such a technically correct player. Mm. It does take him a while to get into his innings. And whereas at number six, you need someone like Mitch Marsh who can come out and sort of hit the boundary straight away to try and sort of get the game moving forward. So I think you'll see Green much more comfortable in that number four spot. And we'll just have to wait and see whether it can translate that Sheffield Shield form into test form in that position. He's such a fascinating Australian sports subject at the moment, Cam Green, because there are those who have watched him closely who do believe he is a bit of a unicorn, something special, out of the box, generational talent. Then there are others who have watched him in the test team who maybe aren't, and fair enough across Shield cricket as much, because it isn't broadcast as much as it once was, who say, well, hang on, I'm not quite seeing what... Everyone else is seeing. I'm a Cam Green fan, massive one. I think he is going to be a freak and one of the greatest ever. Where do you sit on it? Because he, he seems to polarise a touch at this early stage of his career. Yeah, and I can completely understand what you're saying there, Garby. And, and I have been lucky enough. I, I cover the Sheffield Shield for Cricket Australia, so I get to see a hell of a lot of it. And that's why I'm defensive of two players. I'm defensive of Cameron Green um, as, a, as a potential number four because I've seen him do it um, at shield level where he has looked head and shoulders above everybody else. He's got the technique, he's got the temperament, he's got the class, he's got the gears, but he does need to spend some time in the middle before he gets going, which is what, generally speaking, a top-order player does have to do. And I, So I have seen him. And that's why I get very defensive of Marcus Harris because I've seen him dominate Sheffield Shield bowling attacks in difficult conditions for several years. Mm. I know he has the capability of doing it at test level, but the problem for Marcus is whenever he's had his opportunity at the highest level, it's been against India with Boomer at at his absolute best. It's been against England in English conditions when they all struggled. Um, And then back here in Australia when he last had um, a taste at at test level, uh, it was in, again, a a low-scoring test series against England where, you know, he, he did pretty well. His second last test match, he scored a a 70 at the MCG and was very nearly man of the match and then got a 30-odd at the SCG and had to be left out because Usman Khawaja made um, twin centuries when he was uh, just coming in as a concussion sub for or a COVID sub, I think it was, for, mm. for Travis Head. So I think you've got a... It's a bit of a roundabout way of, of answering your question, but mm. I do think you've got to respect Sheffield Shield cricket and yep. what those players are doing at Shield cricket can translate because it's the best domestic competition in the world. So if Cameron Green can average over 50 at number four in shield cricket, you've got to think that can translate to test cricket. For sure. And he can do it with the ball. I mean, we, we've seen it against South Africa. He's got a test cricket Pfeiffer against India. He bowled really well when he made his test debut, struggled a bit 
in England, uh, but he was battling some injury, of course. So he's been a bit inconsistent, but at his best, he is dynamic and arguably, well, not arguably, I think he is a better bowler than Mitch Marsh. There can be no doubt about that as we look to the future yeah. um, and replacing Mitch Marsh as the all-rounder uh, down the line. That leads us into the bowlers. The evolution of that group amid these selections, what do you make of that? Because uh, there are big series, as you say, coming up in the future, but it, it looks as if this quartet's going to stay together for the next couple of series at least. Are you a bit worried about the development of some young bowlers coming through? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I don't think this has been discussed enough. Yep. And I think it's a bit the same with the batting. Um, we are we have got this, this group of about 12 or 13 players that have played a lot of cricket together now. But when you look at the next rung down, it is very inexperienced and, and, and I think it's a fairly significant step down. So we did this exercise on Sports Day a couple of weeks ago and we're starting to look at you know the next best seven bowlers in the country. And you really are starting to look at players that have not played a lot of Sheffield Shield cricket at all. Hmm. Um, Victoria's got three or four of them that have been blooded over the last couple of years. There's, uh, there's one a young guy called Jack uh, Nisbet in New South Wales, um, Liam Haskett in, in Western Australia is another one, a left armour. There's um, Jordan Buckingham in South Australia, and then Xavier Bartlett, who's taken more wickets than anyone in the Big Bash this year. He had a great Sheffield Shield season last year. But these guys are really inexperienced, and I think it is one of the largely one of the reasons why um, you know Cummins, Hazelwood, and Stark they're still so important for Australia, not just because of what they they are doing now and what they have done in the past, but I'm not sure that there's a lot coming through that you go, here's our next Mitchell Stark, here's our next Josh Hazelwood. And, you know, Scotty Boland's been on the fringes now for quite some time, but but he's not young. Um, So I'm just not sure where those young dynamic bowlers are. Likewise with the batting, you know, we're talking about Harrison Bancroft as the the obvious next two, and then there's obviously Renshaw as well who's in the squad. But Harrison Bancroft are both 31. Yeah. Um, where's the next 21, 22? Or where's the next Michael Clark? Where is the next Ricky Ponting who emerged as you know, a really young player? Mm. Outside of Will Pekoski, who's got his own issues, you know, you're really searching to find that, that young guy that's averaging 40-plus in, in Sheffield Shield cricket. We thought it was going to be Teague Wiley, but he's lost his spot in the West Australia team wow. um, just before Christmas. Yeah, um, they can jump out of the box, though, and uh, hopefully there'll be a few in the in the future who do that. And when we talk about our unluckiest Australian cricketers, maybe we'll harp back to an era when uh, we did have a plethora of players yeah. that were running around, as we know, in the Sheffield Shield and uh, could have played in many a test team around the globe. At the big bash last night, there was a massive clash between the Heat and the Scorchers, and uh, the home side Brisbane made a big statement. Gee, they were good. And look, you'd expect them to be good because their team looked so good on paper and, and obviously with uh, with Kawaja and Labashane coming back into that team, um they just they looked they looked a really strong lineup. Um but the reality is that they're going to lose possibly their top five for the final series because of Munro going, um obviously Kawaja, Renshaw and Labashane going. And there's one more that uh, that might be on the way out as well. So it's really going to test their depth. But they've gone from being Garby the team that we all um, used to mock in a way because they were just incredibly inconsistent with mm. the way that they would play to now being a very reliable team with both bat and ball. And I think their bowling is the thing that's really improved. To have Kuhneman and Swepson as those two high-quality spinners, 
Um, I mentioned before about Bartlett. Um, they just they're just finding a way. I think you know if you look at that bowling as defence, I think they've become a lot better in that area, which has taken a bit of the pressure off their bowling. But I'm still a scorchers man for the final series because I think they're a lot more reliable and they're not going to be losing too many players between now and the and, and the final series. Um, but outside that. It's a real raffle. You think the Sixers, because again, a bit like the Scorchers, you, you trust them, yep. but I don't think they're playing as well this year as they have previously. And then you're down to teams like you know the Stars and the Strikers that, that on their day are dangerous, but they are very, very inconsistent. Michael Neese's 64 was instrumental in Brisbane's yeah. win. Geez, we talk about the unluckiest, unluckiest Australian cricketers. He needs to figure in that conversation. I think, uh, for me, a good indicator, indicator of a team's confidence when they're really up and going is how they are in the field. I thought the Heat's desperation late in the game against the Scorchers last night was compelling. I mean, they were just scrapping for every single blade of grass in the field um, to stop a Scorchers run. And that had a, a big impact on extinguishing any fight or hope that Perth may have had. So that was a good sign for the Heat. We know we got a lot of uh, listeners across SEN 693 in Brisbane. Okay, Whitey, let's get on to the unluckiest Australian cricketers. Uh, Talkback subject today, Bancroft and, and Harris, uh, very unlucky, of course. Michael Nisa as well, who um, we just mentioned a moment ago. Who are the nominations for you? You can cast your mind back as far as you want. <clears throat> well, I think the one that stands out for me growing up is a player, and I've, I've grown up in, in Melbourne, uh, a player by the name of Jamie Siddons, yeah. who was a, a dynamic player for Victoria and then went across and played at South Australia. Um, he was incredibly lucky not to play test cricket. He played a one-day international, but never played uh, ne- never played cricket for Australia. So he's the one that sort of stands out. Um, I think Stuart Law has to be in that conversation as well, someone yeah. that only played the one test match, never was dismissed in a test. He made his debut against Sri Lanka in the same test match that Ricky Ponting made his debut. Um, but while he played a lot of one-day cricket for Australia, he, he just because the team was so strong, um, he just couldn't crack it uh, into the Australian team. And, and I do think Brad Hodge yeah. is someone that needs to be spoken about as well because um, he had limited opportunities because, again, the, the team was so strong and it was kind of like Michael Clark had his spot as that sort of that number four player. Um, they tried him in a couple of other positions, but there was just other players around him that had a lot more experience at test cricket level. But this is a guy that only played a handful of test matches, but included in that was a double century against South Africa. Um, so I think, again, certainly with my Victorian glasses on, um, I think he would definitely be seen as one of the more uh, you know, unlucky batsmen if you look back in the last sort of 20 to 25 years. Yeah. There was always this talk that Brad Hodge and some of the the team at the time in the Australian setup just didn't get on and maybe that's why he didn't get called up on a couple of occasions when he perhaps should have. That was always a, a theory going around in Australian cricket. On that subject, just to finish off, do you think there's anything in the lingering effects of Sandpaper Gate in relation to Cam Bancroft not being included or do you buy George Bailey's comments yesterday 100% that it had absolutely nothing to do with it? Yeah, yeah look, it's an interesting one, Garvey. I... I think even if it's subconscious, I don't think it helps um, okay. because the reality of the situation is that if we go back to that time in South Africa, all the bowlers that are still playing for Australia now uh, were there in South Africa, um, as was Cameron Bancroft. So it wasn't the fact that Cameron Bancroft was involved in the sandpaper um, situation because he, he had, he, after he served his ban, he came back and played cricket for Australia again. But that whole thing around team dynamic and trust 
you wonder whether it comes into it just a little bit, even if it is subconscious. Mm. I think probably a thing that um, has emerged with David Warner retiring and now this discussion around Cameron Bancroft just shows, even from a, a cricket fan point of view, there is still a lot of fans that are angry that we still don't know what happened in South Africa. And when an incident like this comes up, there are a a portion of the Australian cricket fans that immediately put their hands up and say, oh, there we go, the sandpaper thing again. (laughs) Cameron Bancroft's being hung out to dry by by some of the senior players. Now, I don't think it's necessarily right, but until the cricket fan knows exactly what happened in South Africa there are always going to be some that are going to draw their own conclusions because I still feel that Cricket Australia um, sweep it under the carpet rather than, and look, it's probably too late now, but I think if they were truthful from the start, it would have been much easier for all of us as cricket fans to get over it and not have these lingering doubts whenever there is a selection situation uh, or whenever it is that someone retires. And I kind of feel for David Warner in a lot of ways because I think that, while David Warner was, was central to a lot of what went on, and we know that because he was suspended for such a, a long period of time, mm. I think to, to say that he was the only person that was involved or was the categoric central character to it and that he should take so much of the responsibility, I actually think he's being a little bit unfair on David Warner. So, again, we, we still don't know exactly what happened yeah. and probably we, 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 we may never will. <laughs> Unless David Warner writes that book, which he uh, has alluded to yes. in the next uh, couple of years. Quite amazing that Warner, Bancroft, Smith, the three players involved in Sandpaper Gate, will all be involved in the Sydney Smash tomorrow night at the SCG. Sold out affair, Smith uh, in the Sixers pink and thun, uh, thunder green to be worn by Bancroft and Warner. That's quite incredible when you take into account the selection yeah, right. that has transpired over the last 24 hours or so. Bancroft missing out, Smith moving up to open up, David Warner vacating that position. Adam White from SEN Cricket, thanks so much for your time, mate. Really enjoyed it. Now, anytime, Gabby, anytime. Have a good day.